Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Queer Readers Podcast hosted on our Discord server. I'm Rachel, one of the hosts. And I'm Ella, another host. And today we're talking about Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. And Ella is going to do the content warnings. It's not too bad, especially in this book. It's mostly you do have a lot of gore. Um, they are necromancers. They're doing a lot of weird stuff with bodies. Death. And then, like, reference to child murder, but there's, it's a fairly, like, dark story, but also quite funny. So, beyond that, I don't think there's too much else that needs much warning for. Just, yeah, prepare. It's a funny, hilarious, but also quite tragic story. And oh, yeah, I'll give a little synopsis. Um, I'll say this is a, it's a fairly complicated book, but I shall go over it as best as I can. Um, but we are starting off in a world of necromancers and cavaliers. And there are nine houses in this world. They all seem to live on their own planet. And we are following the ninth house with Hera Harkner and the Jesmus, the heir to the ninth house. And Gideon the ninth, who is just a stray orphan who lives on the ninth um, and who turned up there under very mysterious circumstances. All the houses then receive an invitation from the emperor, lord of the necromancers, asking the houses to bring along their heirs and their cavaliers to the first house, Canaan house, um, so he can have more lictors, so they can figure out the ritual to join his lictors, who are like immortal beings who have been around for about 10,000 years. They have lost some lictors, and so they need more lictors to join the ranks uh, to defeat his enemies. And so at the start, Gideon is trying to run away because she really wants to enlist in the army. But through various shenanigans, Nona Jesmus convinces her to pretend to be her cavalier and to come to Canaan House with her. And so Gideon, who normally uses like a a longsword, like she loves having like a longsword and she is very good. Like she is a a very like beefy, uh, muscly woman who is obsessed with her longsword and now she's got to learn <laughs> how to fight with a very small and thin rapier but she gets there after a lot of training and they head over to Canaan house where they embark on the trials which are quite intense very intensive trials they're figuring things out but then things turn a very dark turn when all the m- members of the other house are turning up dead in very gruesome ways Someone seems to be picking them off. And they're all also trying. So they're trying to survive, trying to figure out who's murdering them all, and also trying to become very powerful, immortal beings. And it turns out becoming one um, is a lot more tragic than they might have anticipated. I won't go into too much more, but that is getting the knife. It is it's generally one of the funniest books I've ever read. Like the the point of view is from getting the ninth, and she is just like a very, I don't want to say simplistic, but she is just like a very like or like blunt. Like she likes what she likes. She is a. It's quite funny. There's like a whole thing where Nona Jesimus has asked her to like pretend to have a vow of silence, like in the first like a few days of being in Canaan House, because she doesn't want like her to let slip that she's not like a proper cavalier. So everyone like, and everyone's like sort of wary of the Ninth House because they're like cultists, and so they have like a very kind of like menacing sort of reputation. And so when she finally does speak to them, everyone's very shocked at how um kind of crass or like Gideon the Ninth is, and it is hilarious, and I love Gideon so much. I excellent synopsis as always. And also, I just wanted to share for anybody who's like curious about the book but hasn't read it, that these are the things that made me buy it and never look back with no regrets. Um, the It was pitched to me as lesbian necromancers in space. So obviously, there was that, which I will say, I, un, unconfirmed lesbianism. I would say sapphic necromancers in space but very busy they're very busy this is not um their primary concern being sapphic and um still love it and then the very first line of the book is to me like one of the best that i've read and i will um quote it here which is 
in the myriadic year of our Lord, the 10,000th year of the King Undying, the kindly Prince of Death, Gideon Nav packed her sword, her shoes, and her dirty magazines, and she escaped from the House of the Ninth. Is that not the best? (laughs) Very important. Dirty magazines. Yes. You know, this is um, just to kind of build on what you were saying, Ella, about um, Gideon and the way the book's written, its humor and kind of, I mean, it comes down to just having such a, such a voice, character voice coming through um, from Gideon's point of view that just the, the narrative to me is compelling because of that, like just her point of view and her way of seeing the world and her her voice, which I've said a couple of times, is so vividly drawn and she's such a great character. And I keep forgetting, and I know this um, to be the case, but my in my memory of the book, I almost think of it as a first-person book, but it's not. As I just read, the book is just a very close third person. Um, and I find, I just found the writing so impressive. I feel like you and I are going to we were chatting a little before we started recording and we both already know one another to be big fans of the book. But I do think it's worth noting that this is one of those books that the things that you and I love about it will be things other people don't love about it. It's like so true. The the, the things that in a book I think often that are the most compelling are that way for both people who like it and who don't, you know, it's like if it really leans into what I find to be a strong voice and a, a very distinct narrative style that is the author's it leans so hard into that and so the people who who like it just love it for that reason and the people who don't like that element of it are driven away by it would you would you think that's a fair statement because i think the writing which i loved is a reason some people don't finish the book in my experience chatting with people definitely because it's one where I just I love the humor and I love like if I if I love a character and if I find it funny then I'm, even if it's like really confusing and if I don't really know what's going on I'm still going to keep with it just because I want to hear like the next quip from them because um, I know that I lent out my copy to my sister and she just couldn't get on with it um, she I think one of her kind of confusions was like she couldn't figure out who was who and I feel like because I I most like I listened to the audiobook which I think is probably one of the best ways of actually like reading the series because the narration is fantastic. And yes. the narration gives like really distinct accents for all the different characters. So it's really like, even if like I can't quite keep their name straight, I know who's talking. I know who <laughs> it is compared to like, if I was just reading the book for the first time and I was just like, hold all these names because they, they have a lot of names and they often go by by different names like throughout the book so like that i think it's it's one of these where if you can just go with the flow almost like you anytime someone buys this at work i was like just go with it it's going to be confusing <laughs> but it's really fun <laughs> so just yes it. i agree i i think too like when people tell me that the writing is an obstacle for them it depends on how they say it if they say I really love this character, but I'm so confused. Then I would say, I think keep going and I just immerse yourself in it and you'll, you know, it'll come together. If they're like, I hate the way this is written. I'm so confused. <laughs> then I'm like, you know, it might not be your book, you know, cause it really, it doesn't ever, um, the, the, the style of the book is in some ways, I think a little bit, um, daring. And it, it just doesn't work for everyone. So there's you're never going to have anything really broken down for you. Everything is going to be pieced together as you read. And for some people, that's a joy. And for others, it is a slog. And so I just wanted to mention that because I have been in this meditative state with reading where I just think um, books books that are going to be beloved are the one are also going to be hated. You know what I mean? It's like the books that play it safe and offend no one aren't going to truly become a favorite of anybody. And I think this book is really indicative of that. So if you've heard people who you normally agree with say that they don't like the book, I don't think it should stop you because I have friends and I mean, even on the server, um, among our hosts, we have, um, 
I think Ella, wasn't it just you and I, I think everyone tried it and you and I loved it and everyone else was like, I don't know. I don't really get it. Yes. So, so, and we tend to have a lot of overlap or we wouldn't have all kind of collaborated on this project together. So I, I'm just saying that it's one of those where you're not going to know if you will love it until you try it. But I think um, without belaboring it, the writing, the writing is one of my favorite aspects, but it doesn't, shy away from confusing you so you kind of have to go with it but the other thing that um i was thinking about while you talked about the synopsis was the the um setup of all the houses and the pitch that i got which was necromancers in space and the fact that there's necromancy and so one thing that I think is interesting about this book is that I can't decide if it's science fiction or fantasy. I guess it's a little bit of a genre bender. Um, and you and I, Ella, have both read more in the series because there's three books out so far. So do you feel like this book is more fantasy than science fiction or more, or the opposite or what? It's, it's almost got like the setting of sci-fi, but then it's got the magic system of fantasy. So it's, I think I if I had to shelve it in like one genre, I think it would predominantly be sci-fi, purely because of the aesthetics and the setting, and like mm. because you've got planets and because you've got spaceships. But then like the actual kind of magic system of the necromancy, it just feels it, like it, it is sort of based in science. Like you've got a few because all the houses basically practice different types of necromancy. Um, yeah. So, like, you've got uh, it's the sixth house. Who they do a lot of sort of like medical necromancy, um, but then you've got like the seventh house who they basically like the necromancer drains like energy and like life and soul almost from his cavalier. I forgot the word then, but his cavalier <laughs> to like get power. Uh, whereas Nona Jesimus uses bones and such and can like resurrect and make her own skeletons. So, like, yeah. Nona Jesimus feels very fantasy because it's you know it's making skeletons and it feels very also like D type of thing um mm -hmm. something i'll do in boulder's gate whereas like plamity sextus it's very like healing based and he's like so analytical and also like you've got abigail pent who is like um basically almost like a librarian type thing and does a lot of like research into history and all that stuff so it's i think it kind of combines the elements so well that i think it's almost like a perfect mix of fantasy and sci-fi which is i think it adds like this book is it's just so unique it's one of these where like yeah it's definitely there are so many books out there that like our best sellers that are just they're fine like mm -hmm. sorry most of the time like some people will probably like love them but they're not ones that will like that stay with you where this one like even if you hate it it's not one that you can <laughs> forget about <laughs> i feel like yeah, I I totally agree. Yeah, I think that's true. I just feel like the books that really stand out in a positive way for people are the the, the other side of that coin, coin is that they will be negative standouts for others cuz I, I don't know. <laughs> and we 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 can't get into a whole lot of the I don't know. We we always do spoilers for the book we're discussing. So I think that's fair, but I don't want to go forward and spoil more books in the series, but I do think the that the um you know the way that I once heard fantasy and um and science fiction delineated was by theme and that so if the theme is like what is the point of humanity and like what is the impact of of this uh kind of a speculative element on human nature and human society then that's science fiction and if the question is what is the um like if it's more like a the the speculative element exists to create a sense of wonder and drama and adventure then that's fantasy which i don't know if that, i totally agree with that but that to be that being said if you think about the whole series which we haven't read all of the books in the series of course because they're not all available but this over the course of the three books that are out is i mean i do feel like it has more of a science fiction theme in terms of what it builds toward because it really is this question of what if you think about species this the existential stakes of a whole species or a whole planet or a whole galaxy like what 
what um what does this world with necromancy in it say about human humanity and like what we're for and what we should be, you know? So I, I think it's just really brilliant. I don't know. I'm so impressed by everything the author does in each book, but we're here to talk about this one, I suppose. So we should probably, we should probably do that. Let's talk about the characters. <laughs> oh, okay. So there are a lot of characters. I adore the majority of them. And even the ones that I don't particularly like, I feel like they, they just stand out so well. I don't even know who to start with. Um, we have talked about Gideon. Gideon, fantastic, hilarious. Uh, he mm-hmm. talks about Arahark, the necromancer of the ninth house. I wanted to. I want to do the big spoiler of. I feel like the perfect expression of her character is the fact that she has been. And you can cut this if you think it's too much of a spoiler because the reveal is so good. What is all the stuff from this book? Is yeah. So yeah, spoiler, yeah. I love, well, okay, to me, this is Harrow in a nutshell, that she has for years been um, fooling all of the people of the Ninth into believing that her dead parents are alive by basically using them as necromancy puppets. Like, she has them up there, and she says they've taken a vow of silence, so she speaks for them, but she has them move and, like, still be there in their in their dead bodies. It's like her her little puppets because she doesn't want to expose the the ninth the house of the ninth to whatever would happen if it were known that her parents have, are have passed and the mystery of why they passed and every you know all that comes out later in the book but in the early scenes you see that and to me that is just I was just obsessed with the book from the beginning because of Gideon's voice. But frankly, from that point forward, I was like, okay, I'm in, this is the weirdest, most macabre like, horror show of a fantasy book I've ever read. And I'm so happy to be here. And I'm so fascinated by Harrow. She's just like this little brat princess who also is using <laughs> her parents as mummy puppets. Like it was just the best. So I feel like Caro, though, as you go on, you learn more about how she truly has this real sense of responsibility in herself toward her people. And she's very cruel to Gideon, for sure. But you get the sense that there's more going on with her. And as it's revealed, I mean, she truly is like a very, she's not a self-serving character. She's not in it for personal glory, really, except that she has this strong sense of individual responsibility because of the powers that she has and how she got them to like save the knights basically, because they're on the verge of just total collapse. Plus it's revealed slowly that they guard, that they are the guardians of this tomb that must remain locked or like the world will end. And, you know, she knows more about that and the, you know, and the reasons why the ninth needs to stay intact and that, that secret needs to be guarded. So I don't know. I just find her to be, to be awesome in her own right. And she, the fact that she's so mean to Gideon and Gideon is so mean in return leads to excellent banter and um, enemies to friends vibes that I just enjoyed throughout the book. Cause she's, I liked how, like how hostile their relationship was and just kind of how awful, um, how a hawk is to Gideon. Like, you know, Watching all her attempts to escape and like kind of really rubbing it in and being quite <laughs> smug in a way. But then it's when you kind of learn more about like her creation, and this is another big spoiler, but like the reason why she feels so much responsibility and guilt as well, and why she's like so determined to become a lictor to save her house is that her mother had like had all these miscarriages and an order for the night path to survive they needed like a very powerful necromancer they needed to birth one and so to do that they in a really horrific act but they murdered all the children of the night house and they they told her from the get-go that like she is the combination of them sacrificing an entire generation of children like the house's future just for her and so Mm-hmm. And you have this really touching scene when Gideon like asks, like, "Do you think you were worth that?" And she's like, "No, there's no possible world <laughs> in that. I am worth the death of so many people." Which what you know makes the ending so heartbreaking as well. 
when yes. like yeah another death added to her to her tally i suppose and she the one that she least wanted i know yes it's so true she her the stakes for her are protecting the house obviously but then she feels like her life and her talents came at such a high price i mean can you imagine the self-loathing of knowing that like you're full of the power of all these ghost children you know uh, well which I wasn't ever totally clear on if that is why she's so powerful or if it was just almost superstitious stuff. Like they're so, they're such a unusual, um, like, a the, the, the ninth house has this reputation of being kind of, um, I thought of, I thought they're kind of characterized. Well, they, they refer to Gideon and to, um, and to Harrow as like nuns, you know, throughout like that, that they are, uber religious they're basically like the extreme the religious extremists of the nine houses and that's why yeah. they, they appear in the you know the cover of the book shows the skeletal paint and all of that which is of course um if you've read the book what they are supposed to like that is what harrow thinks they should wear anytime they're around anyone else but the other houses aren't like that i mean they're kind of varying degrees of formality but they certainly don't wear like skeleton paint you know this is like this is a ninth thing so the ninth is weird and has all this weird superstition and all this stuff but but you also know reading the book that some of the superstition isn't superstition like they are guarding a tomb that is real and has like actual need to be contained but um i think the perception among the other houses is somewhat like well they're just crazy people and also super religious nuns and so yeah i wasn't sure with the story about the children and all of that if that obviously harrow is really powerful but would she have probably been like just about as powerful i don't know that part i didn't think was clear but maybe i missed it they have this whole thing in which like the power that necromancers need is energy, and so basically and that is basically like death energy so i always yeah. kind of think that, that you know there was so much like energy that came from like the murder of all these kids and so like that energy is what made harahawk so powerful i mean that is just what i assumed i could be completely wrong as i don't know either well i, I think like that's what that's what they imply i think that was what they thought would happen and then she did wind up being really powerful so it could be yeah it could be true but i didn't think it was like ex Explicit that that was death because she's really powerful, but she's not like god level, you know. So yeah. I don't know. She's, yeah, she's um, well, not she's not basic, but she's very kind of like she knows that she is incredibly powerful. <laughs> so maybe when a, a character who kind of like wakes up from unconsciousness by saying that he's the most powerful necromancer, and she's like, oh, it's so funny. I know the whole book is. Is funny. I mean, I think as we talk about it, it's clear that it has all those hum humorous elements, including, I think, the fact that they are always wearing like their creepy clothing, especially at the very beginning. And um, they're seen as such weirdos. Whereas from the audience perspective, we don't have any context. You know, we started with the House of the Ninth. So it's like, is everybody weird? Like, zombie worshiping skeleton people but no that's that's just the ninth and i think um too like the whole thing with um they're going to this first house and you don't realize until they're there that the it, you think you're they're going to like the emperor you know palace or whatever i think is what i assumed but then you get there and i mean so kind of but it's also abandoned and the planet is basically uninhabited except for these some people who aren't really people. I mean, all of that was to me also fascinating. The the being in that house and discovering it bit by bit and, and like unlocking its rooms. I mean, it has such this book does have like gothic story in space going in every single scene, I feel, because it's this idea of this literally haunted, booby-trapped space that's also like a it's like those rooms, those locked room challenges, you know, where you're trying yeah. to like get room. I mean, it's just the puzzle of it. And then the the setting of this mysterious, creepy, giant place that's like one part haunted house, one part lab, one part industrial complex. Like, it's just, 
I don't know. To me, the setting was fascinating and um, really added to the pull the story had over me. I mean, I was just so curious the whole time. And that, I think, is the curiosity is what makes people turn the pages, right? So I think that's what you probably were talking about too, Ella, when you were like, if you can just stick with it and ride through the confusion, just know that like the answers will, are there eventually. You just keep going and they they come. But um, yeah, you don't know anything at the beginning and there's so much going on and so many characters, which is why we were talking before we started recording. The audiobook was such an amazing experience in part because the narrator is just so talented in the creating these individual literal voices for the characters but i mean they have not just a distinct voice um in her delivery they also have this sense of like personality and she's so good at conveying emotion in her voice even while doing these distinct voices it was just just very masterfully done definitely and it's it's a book that really helped having a reread of so like i, I reread it for this book and it's just there is so much that then like I've just I've understood it so much more and it's I think we'll talk about um the kind of the big bad evil of the book the person who's yeah. behind so, so yeah they're meant to be doing all these trials and the trials in and of themselves are quite dangerous and like they can be deadly but then people are turning up just mutilated mm -hmm. um and it turns out you find out big old spoiler is because one of the lictors has a gate crashed, so Kitheraya, <laughs> and she is a fascinating character. So she basically sneaks into the house by pretending to be the necromancer of the seventh house, who is I need to get my list of character names. I guess Dulcinea, right? That one's Dulcinea, Dulcinea yeah. Septimus. Um, and it's basically known that the seventh house, um, there's a big chance that the uh, for their necromancers to be really badly chronically ill. I believe you find out later like they have some sort of blood cancer yeah. or something. So they're just known. And it's almost like they sort of deliberately go for that because um, if you're a necromancer and your body is basically dying, you have a lot of like death energy that you can use. So you can be incredibly powerful. Mm. Um, but she has, uh, you find out that she has killed um Dulcinea and she has taken her place because she used to be part of the same house so she's got quite similar looks and she's got the same illness that Dulcinea had however she turned to Elixir before she died so like before she was Elixir she was very close to death and then she became an immortal being and it was clear that like she had hoped that being becoming Elixir would cure her but it didn't instead she's just been incredibly ill for ten thousand years, uh, and like she's she's in a but like because she really deteriorates while she's on the house, and like I just can't imagine. And like it, it's very clear that like she she really wants to die, and I believe like so she's she's going around and she is she is basically murdering the houses because she wants revenge on the emperor. Um, she wants to destroy him, and she knew that. If she lured him to the house by killing all the house, like the house heirs, she could do that. Yeah, I know. It's so, the, the reveal is really good because you realize that, as you said, that she did have a lot in common with the character she was like impersonating, like her kind of her puppet. <laughs> um, but she, she's also, um, I don't know, she's also... It, it, it's interesting because if if you look back, she has as as when she's discovered this very um, sharp kind of very in like rate kind of like hard rageful way of communicating with everyone. But I'm wondering if on your reread, like because she has the she has all those conversations with Gideon before her true identity is revealed and and Gideon has this huge crush on her too so <laughs> I don't know I just I found that um that part of it made me really curious and I didn't go back and reread the entire book again because I was moving on to the second book and then you know devouring it but I I would be curious if in your reread Ella what you what you took away from those conversations like how much of 
how much of the truth of Kisarea herself is like in those conversations do you think everything she said is what she believed like when you're reading it it's definitely like I would never have guessed who she was but going back it's so clear about who she is everything she's talking about about like the evils of it you know being alive for so mm-hmm. long there are moments when she's just so tired and she like is you know the way she acts she is just old she is ancient there are moments when like she even says that like you know she feels like ten thousand years old which she is <laughs> right <laughs> and it's I think because she is, when you go into the next books and you kind of, you have chances where you can actually meet the Dulcinea, it's just fascinating to see actually how different they are. Um, mm-hmm. She's a lot more, she's almost, I don't know, sort of manic. I feel like she, she acts quite manic throughout the whole thing in, in a very charming way um, to begin with. But yeah, it is, yeah. Fant- it is just wonderful going back and just like, devouring everything that she says and being like all right like you just get all the double meaning from it now Mm -hmm. yeah i was hoping you would say that because it's such an opportunity for people to enjoy the story again in this different way i mean i think the series as a whole is is full of that i mean this author is so good at um twists you know (laughs) that reveal um that reveal the the kind of um a, like a whole different angle on past events or in this case a past character um and so this is kind of a preview for people who like that of what of like a much more intense version of that which is the second book like the second book as a whole is basically that so yeah i i thought um all the characters are basically i don't know that they necessarily realize that they're in competition with one another i mean they're not really i don't think because there's no there's no minimum number or or like maximum number of them that can become lictors as far as they know you know so they could all succeed but their their houses kind of have if they're all you know they're all on different planets they kind of have this distinct these distinct cultures and this distinct approach to necromancy so some of them are more interested in collaboration than others but certainly they're not all working together to solve the problem they're kind of in their own little unit of air and cavalier trying to work through it with and and some alliances kind of develop over time but i remember um thinking that it's almost like one of those I feel like we see this so much and there's a reason why, because it's very compelling, but the idea of like a contest, like a death contest basically in a book. And it it has that feeling because some of them truly don't want anyone else to succeed. They, they would sabotage one another and certainly aren't going to help each other. And then some of them are more interested in collaborating, but as, as it goes forward, they have less and less trust with one another and they're more and more frightened because they're getting killed off. And it, it's just, it, to me, that um, part of it is, really clever too because it is just really engaging this idea that they're in this like death stakes contest of how to how to uncover the secrets in the house yeah it's well you have this whole thing with keys in which yeah. um, the teacher who is a priest of canaan house you have all these priests um at canaan house and so all the cavaliers are given keys and like the one rule is that uh it's something like they can only like open doors something like you can't open a locked door what what was the rule there is a rule it's it's something like you need to ask permission to open a locked door so if you find that's a locked door and you don't have a key for it you need to ask for permission i think that's the general gist like it's a bit it's the whole thing with the keys and they then soon discover that if they complete the task in this kind of underground center where all the trials are um if they're the first one to complete it then they get another key that will open another door and in these doors they have these like labs that were used by the people it's clear like the emperor you know when he was like ten thousand years ago when like him and his lictors were becoming lictors at the first time mm-hmm. and then like these 
keys, unlock doors into labs, like give them more information on how to become a lictor. Um, and so it's, and the trials also kind of help them in like figuring out how to become lictors, like all the like the things that they're learning from it help with that. So it does like things start to get very tense when people are like arguing over keys and who has the keys, and you get like the the second house they are like a big part of the army and so like they're very kind of uh rigid <laughs> i would say um and so they're trying to like demand that everyone hand over their keys and then this like boils down to some like very deadly jewels which is one of the best jewels in the book and i think that these is nicely to talking about uh the sixth house one of my favorite houses mm-hmm. so we have so the sixth house, this is again like the, the medical house. And um, the next commands is Palamides, his um cavalier is Camilla. They kind of start a bit of an alliance with Nenogesimus and Gideon towards the end. They're working with each other. Um but to start with uh the second house basically demand a duel out of the sixth house and to demand that they hand over their keys, essentially. And everyone's like aghast. There seems to be a reputation that the sixth house aren't very strong and that is very easy to defeat them so everyone's just like that's ridiculous you're just acting like a massive bully but palamides isn't like all that (laughs) all that worried about it and you find out it's because camilla is an incredibly powerful cavalier and she absolutely trounces the second house in like an incredibly entertaining jaw it's fantastic and they are they're just I love Palamides so much. He is such, and he's also <laughs> so important in figuring out Kithira because it turns out that Palamides was actually like in love with Dulcinea and like he, they mm-hmm. have been writing letters to each other. He never actually met her. But I think at one point, like he proposed marriage to her. Um, and like Camilla, like Camilla knows all about this and so he's a bit like fed up <laughs> with his behavior <laughs> about Dulcinea, which is why he's like a, a, and he's not like shocked, but he's like obviously Kithiraya doesn't really like doesn't know him at all. And so he's just like thinking mm-hmm. that Dulcinea is ignoring him out of the awkwardness of like the marriage proposal. But then that's how he figures out that it is not actually Dulcinea because she just doesn't know enough. And then like the scene where Gideon figures that out. <laughs> and there's like a, a quite a funny thing that's running through the whole book where you know Gideon's got a question Dulcinea who's actually Kithiraya um and then Palamides also clearly has like a crush on her is trying to care for her so Gideon throughout it's just like I'm not trying to like you know get in the way <laughs> or like I don't know why he's being so weird with me I just really like her and then when she finds out what's actually happened she's just like oh my god I'm a home wrecker <laughs> i know it is i this the sixth house and kind of their they yeah they're my favorite calamities and camilla too have such an interesting relationship i think seeing how each um heir and their cavalier interact is really interesting i i um didn't really draw this connection until recently but there's such a cool in world building of a fantasy or science fiction novel, I love it when there's like this relationship that is like close, but very specific to the society. And it's kind of weird, but it's like a bond for life almost situation. And that's what we have here, right? With the idea of there's like this royal person and then their cavalier who's like a knight and we can talk more about that but i mean it's almost like in wheel of time with the um like each of the sorcerer people i don't know i'm not a huge wheel of time person but you know there's like the sorcerer that's not what they're called in that book and then they have their guard yeah you know what i mean so i think that that kind of relationship is such a, a a cool thing to explore and of course in the case of gideon and harrow we realized pretty quickly that Gideon is like kind of into Harrow <laughs> and like hates kind of hates that she is, you know? And then Harrow is like oblivious, but like also affectionate toward Gideon, like in her way. And as they are forced to work together more and they get closer, 
that dynamic is much more obvious. And since we're in Gideon's point of view, we understand her feelings more clearly than Harrow's who were just sort of observing. But, um, but so that's like the, that's a very fun way to interpret that dynamic, but also it's very recent for them because Gideon was not ever supposed to be a cavalier. All of her training has been sort of last minute. And so she didn't have that, that relationship with, with Harrow before, but then a lot of the, the pairings were, basically raised together and they have had this kind of intertwined destiny. And so seeing the different ways that that looks, I found that really cool. I mean, it's a really cool part of the story. And it's again, something that I think we've probably seen before and liked before in other stories, but it's, it's definitely done a little differently here. And it's not totally, this is to me like part of the genius of the book is that as you think about it more, it's like, what is the point of the Cavalier except to occasionally do like these duels, but really like the necromancer's power is would transcend what these, what the Cavalier is capable of usually, you know what I mean? They're cause all they can do is like physical stuff as, and it's also very, um, it's like very, the way that they fight is very formal. Like there's this, all this ceremony around it. And you're like, what? After you, you're kind of midway through the book and you're starting to think like, what is the whole point of a cavalier? You know, like what is a cavalier even for if the necromancer is really powerful other than just being like a companion, but that's, so is it just totally a ceremonial thing? And then of course you learn that the culture that has arisen between of this cavalier role is kind of veiling what the first cavaliers were to those first lictors, which is like the way that they became immortal by like eating the soul of someone else, basically. Like, I mean, not basically, that is what was necessary. And so I found that to be so, I don't know. I don't know. You you have to wonder with this kind of idea where it started and what came first and was the whole idea of the world and the history and the way the magic worked the origin or vice versa because it all feels so naturally interlocked and like no detail is forgotten you know it's just very vivid and real which i this is a common complaint i have anymore for fantasy um is that i get into it and i'm like it just doesn't feel like a real world like where is the thing that would exist if this were truly real like a real complicated society with all kinds of different interpretations and this rich history and all that. But this book is not like these, this series, you have that impression of like, everything is there. This could be a real place. Like there's no detail left um, there. You don't know everything, but there's no doubt that like it's there in the fabric of the story. I don't know. That's a lot of, a lot of words to say, just that I found the, I found that to be such a cool reveal of like what the Cavaliers really are. And it's also so heartbreaking too. Yes, and it's I keep like nodding my head as if people can <laughs> I'm nodding my head in agreement. Yeah. But absolutely, because it's it's when Gideon's had that realization and just thinking like that's why you know you got to fight with a rapier because that's like the one weapon that you know the skinny necromancers can actually wield. Um yeah. we find this out when um so one of one of the, the houses they do become a lictor, and th- this is when we go on to talk about my other favorite house, the third house. I love the third house. <laughs> it's, so it's so weird and so toxic. But uh so the third house brings over two necromancers, although maybe not so, as you come to discover, and one cavalier. So you have Coronabeth Tridentarius and Ianthe Tridentarius. Uh they are princesses, very lovely, and then their cavalier, Niberius turn. So they are very like uh Corona Beth and Ianthe, they're twins. Corona Beth is kind of portrayed as like she is very charismatic, she's very friendly, she is incredibly beautiful, she's got lovely long, curly, golden hair. Whereas Ianthe is like <laughs> I love the way she described as like she's kind of like the almost a sickly version. She's got like <laughs> you know, she's like she's not like ugly, she's just like in compared to her twin. She just doesn't have that like that life, that like beauty, and she's got like the long straight hair. And she whereas Kamara is like really warm and lovely and friendly. Um Ianthe is incredibly like cruel and manipulative and all that. And Nibiris is um 
very he's he's a snob. <laughs> tries to like duel the teenager, and I was like fighting a child, you idiot. <laughs> yes, but they like it, it's kind of like the twins. They love each other in a in a very toxic way. Um, as you read the rest of the series, this only becomes more evident about how weird they are <laughs> with each other. Um, but Iante, you know, she has really no scruples and so is delighted to eat the soul of her necromancer, Niberius. <laughs> um, and it turns out that um, Karanabeth isn't actually a necromancer. She's got no necromantic skill. Iante is actually, like, you know, the brains behind the operation. She's incredibly powerful. And she's basically been passing off, you know, the she's been acting as a necromancer for Corona Beth. So she's acted like two necromancers to disguise the fact that Corona Beth isn't a necromancer. And Corona Beth is actually her cavalier. So it's basically, Ayatha just got two cavaliers. There's a there's a really heartbreaking moment when, like, at the end, like, Corona Beth is just distraught, is sobbing about what's happened, you know. Nibirus is dead. But then you get this line, and I hadn't really caught this in my first read, when she says, like, why didn't she pick me? As in, like, why didn't why wasn't she killed and like, you know, had her soul absorbed so that she could be the cavalier that is absorbed into Yanthe, so she'd become an actor. So it seems like she's almost jealous of what you know, happened to Nibirius and that she wanted to be that close with her sister, which is like so weird, but like so weird with what their relationship is like. The fact that, yeah, she probably would be just, I don't know if I'm misreading this, but like that's what I got on my second read and I found it just fascinating. So, yeah, Iyanthe at the end of the book is is now a lictor, very happy to kill her cavalier, and is it's quite, I quite like her as a lictor, she is just diabolical. Well, in this book, in this book, or does it take the next books to realize that the Cavaliers aren't really gone? You know, it's not like they're, they are like in the Lictor, you know? Does, is yeah, that clear in this book? Because you got like, yeah. she's fighting like the Beerus. And this is another spoiler. You get eventually like, they're in a very bad situation where. Kithera is just like she's absolutely going to kill them. Like Ianthe has tried to get her, but she's just like a, a baby lictor, so like she can't overpower ten thousand year old immortal being. And so Gideon basically sacrifices herself, impales herself on a spike, so that uh, her heart can become a lictor. And so you get this really fascinating section where it's like both of them in the same body. And so, like, you get Harahark saying stuff that yeah. is, like, talking like her. It's clear that, like, towards the end, Gideon is fading. Like, she's talking to Harahark at the beginning. But then as, you know, time's going on, like, that voice is fading as she becomes more absorbed. So I think it's the souls in their body, but, like, the influence on, like, the necromancer kind of fades until it's, like, mostly just, like, the fighting that really yeah comes. and that they if the necromancer is like absent from the body the cavalier is there which of course doesn't really come in until book two at all maybe that's a spoiler for book two if it is you can cut it but it's like i think in book two and book three just between you and me i don't know if you want to leave this but in book two and book three you see like the real tragedy of it like that the that the cavalier is still there and that so many of the cavaliers and lictors had like this very close relationship and miss one another, you know, but, and they've been like on these on like in the same body, but never at the same time. And so they can't really ever see each other again, even though they both still exist. I found that to be so heartbreaking too. It's like, like they leave these little notes for each other. An intimate way, but you can never, experience it together almost yes yes i know it it's so smart but yeah for this book i think that the impact of the ending is huge because of course if you got that far you did it you did so because you just love gideon i mean you can't get through the book and not either love or hate her i guess and um 
and what she does at the end is so powerful. And then, and then also for the character you've been with the whole book to to die at the end is, I mean, a very impactful ending, whether you like it or not. So, yeah, it's got a, it's got such a dramatic close, which is you know it builds so long and so intensely that you you it's nice to see it stick the landing with something that feels it would just be so easy for any other ending to feel anticlimactic i think but it certainly isn't that no they're very very dramatic ending oh it was just so and it's this whole thing like there's another person that has now died so mm-hmm. that her heart can be powerful and there's like another soul added into her oh. i know yes i know and there's this there's this really cute moment that's so sad where Harrow tells Gideon that like you're my only friend and it's so true you know like they have nobody but each other even when they were tearing each other's hair out growing up as like these feral children in the haunted ninth house <laughs> like they were they were like sibling friend you know sibling no but we don't want to say that cuz that's kind of incestuous but you know they were like each other's only companion and so they have this shared history and this bond, even when they hate each other, that is really singular. And then and then Hera revealing that like she this is as much of a as much of an expression of love as she knows how to give is what the way that she is with Gideon. She's just so emotionally stunted for all of the reasons that we can <laughs> know and understand that this is like the best she can do. I don't know. I just found it so you just want both of them to get like a big hug, preferably from each other, but just from anyone. Like they're just so, um, I, I felt I was, I found them both just so compelling by the time I got to the end of the book. It took me a little time with Harrow, but I mean, as you learn more about her, um, yeah, they're both amazing characters. So it's a good one. Did we yeah. talk about all the things? I th- well, <laughs> definitely. There's no way we can talk about We've covered. Um, oh, I guess. Okay, two houses. Who I think we can talk. I think we can talk about them together. Um, I think this this will be the, the final thing we can talk about. We have talked a lot. Um, but you've got the fourth and the fifth house, and so they are the two houses who were murdered. I mean, a lot of the others murdered, but they are like one of like the first who are gone. The first to go are the fifth house, and this is Abigail Penn and her husband and her cavalier, Magnus Quinn. So she's like really a historian, Magna, and they're just like so friendly. Like they hold this like anniversary dinner because, you know, it's their wedding anniversary and they invite everyone to come over. And that's like one of the last like really kind of like quite chill and lovely like evenings in the house. They also have this whole thing where it it's not actually like, proper for a necromancer to marry their cavalier but they were just like nope we're in love <laughs> this is what's happening apparently magnus quinn isn't like a he's not the best <laughs> cavalier but he knows this and they are just like they are the parents of the group it's even more touching is that like they really take on this parental role with the fourth house and they are isaac tetris and jean marie i can't pronounce the last name but and they they are teenagers. They are incredibly young. They are very funny. <laughs> they are this really ridiculous teenagers, and they are very impressed with the ninth house. I think there's a moment where uh, Jean Marie is like demanding that she feel Gideon's bicep, being like, "It can't possibly be that big." <laughs> uh, and it's really and so obviously when Abigail Magnus turn up dead um, on the same night as our anniversary dinner. Isaac and Jean-Marie are just devastated and there is like I think that's one of the saddest things it's like seeing their group like it's it's so it's just it's so strong and it's like and they're they're just so young they're children and the fact that they're going through this is just heartbreaking and then it's like what happens to them because um Isaac is basically killed by like this big awful bone construct that Kethereo had like built that was roaming around the kind of underground area and like he's just impaled and then John Marie is just like devastated, obviously. 
and just can't cope. And so Gideon's just like, because she was like taking care of both Isaac and Jean-Marie at that point. And so she's also just like, doesn't know what to do, is just like, you know, feels awful. And so decides to take Jean-Marie to like one of the necromantic labs that they had found, um, like hoping to keep her safe. They both fall asleep. Gideon's just falling asleep for like a moment and then she wakes up and Jean-Marie. That is so hard. Yeah, I think that's one of the hardest moments of the book. Because they're they're such great characters. Like I think they're they're the two houses that are just like so distinct and they are like obviously the loveliest houses. And it's like and I can't say the first to go. It's made and this is what interesting like it's made clear like why. Abigail plays the first murder Kithira like gets really panicked when she overhears that um Abigail like her main interest is actually history and she's like researching basically like the history of the emperor and his lictors and so Kithira's like oh she actually mm-hmm. could rather me like, figure out who I am like, like she she needs to go <laughs> yes uh I know yeah, all the um the the characters who are like gentle and kind do seem to get picked off pretty quick, you know, I mean, which feels realistic. And then the, um, the justification though is like in place, like you said, there's an, there's a reason it wasn't just that they weren't like good at defending themselves because of course it with Kisarea, like nobody could you know as soon as she has the opportunity or like chooses a target it's over because she is so much more powerful than anyone else so it's not like the weak ones go first for because they're weak because they're all weak to her and i think that that was one of the things in the ending which was so um fascinating to me this like i mean she's killed all these characters that you care about but there's like a complexity to the things that she says that that make it, you know, there's not like a she's evil sort of answer to the question because it's this sort of idea of like madness and motivations over thousands of years. There's just an inhumanity almost to her, her rage and like this despair that you sense in her um, even before you learn more in the in the books to come that I feel like. I, I, that resonated with me. I I think it's kind of I don't want to say lazy, but it's just less interesting when the villain is purely villainous, and she's there's like more to her than that, and you can tell that, which it makes sense. I mean, how do you get that old and not be pretty messed up? You know? Yeah, like e- like <laughs> even if you're you know in a, in a healthy body and you're you know fitting good <laughs> happy <most> body. <laughs> yeah, like even even with that, like you, you're gonna go like nothing's good can happen if you're living for that long and it's the fact that right. she's so tragic that she went to that house ten thousand years ago in a desperate bid to like to get you know a cure otherwise you know i feel like yes. she accepted death and then to be stuck for ten thousand years constantly dying to have yes. no release from them, no chance and then like there's no real way of managing it like she is if she had lasted two more weeks as a mortal, she would have been dead. But yeah, you're right. I hadn't, I hadn't spent as much time as you have thinking about that aspect of her character. But yeah, it's just, it makes me shudder to think of. Yeah, just the worst thing you can imagine. <sighs> it's, it's that tragedy, like, she killed her cavalier to get the cure. That's why she wanted to be healthy. And if not, you know, okay. I thought, like, yeah, she would have taken death. And instead, she was just basically tortured in her own body for 10,000 years. Well, and I think that um, all the lictors have this, which, you know, we haven't met the other ones in this book, but they have this aspect of their immortality that is that they know the cost, which is like a person that they loved had to die, you know. And so it's really... I mean, talk about the kind of thing that you can never really get over, even if you're alive for 10,000 years. So it's a, I know it's just such a, it's a very, it's a very smart um, way to psychologically torture a character. That's all I'm saying. 
<laughs> both are fascinating. Well, uh, I was thinking, I was thinking that the one thing that we didn't really get into was like the, um, the the relationship, I guess, between, um, I mean, we talked about it a little, but the relationship between Gideon and Hera, which I feel like this is the thing that I really um, don't know how to describe to people because don't like when I was doing a little bit of research on, you know, just other reviews and things like that to help me crystallize my own thoughts as we got ready for this talk. I, I think I, when I Googled like the first part of Harrow or sorry, Gideon the ninth, I think the first thing that comes up is like a question about whether it's sapphic or like whether it's a romance. And I, I mean, it's not a romance, definitely not. But is it, do you feel like this book, this like incidentally sapphic, which I'm for? I mean, I like queerness as just not the main feature of a story, but yeah. Because in the perspective of Gideon, who was like very open about, you know, she loves women. She talks yes. about it a lot. She's a <laughs> yes. beautiful woman. And I think it's about that, like, she has these questions, like, her being queer is such like a, a central part of her character and like no like there are no real kind of romantic I mean there are implied like there's definitely kind of you know romantic tensions that go along I think it's definitely like you see as a relationship builds up between Gideon and Harahawk and like you get these moments where like Gideon keeps accusing Harahawk of being really jealous of like how she is with Dulcinea so you get mm-hmm. things like that. So I think it's definitely like no, it's not a romance, but I still think like it's a very gay book. Um very gay. I like that, yes. Yeah, you're right. Because Gideon, I mean, how old are they supposed to be again? Like twenty what? or nineteen or yeah, I think nineteen. Yeah. And Gideon like is kind of a horny teenager, you know, with her dirty magazines. Yes. <laughs> and she has she's so cute with her crush on Dulcinea who's not Dulcinea like just the stuff she notices about her and when they talk and her shyness around her I find I find that all very it just felt very much like tough teenage kid but feeling soft feelings you know it was very sweet so that is an aspect of it and then her realizing her or maybe her admitting more to how she really feels about Carol, although she doesn't get all the way there in this book, but I mean, as it's easy to see the implications as the reader, that's all there. I think it's hard to really judge without reading the whole series, which I haven't yet because I haven't read the last book. But um, so I guess maybe the jury's out. I would say it is. It is. It is gay and it's sapphic in that it is Gideon's the point of view character, and that is the only sort of attraction that we know her to experience. I mean, it's not expressly said one way or the other, but she is attracted to women and that's kind of part of the narrative here and there. So I, I understand yeah. like I do see these criticisms of people being like, you know, people are missetting it by saying that it's, you know, lesbian necromancers in space. And in like because, you know, the gayness isn't like a massive central part of the actual plot of the book but it is a central part of the characters definitely in the first one i think you can argue in the later books because you're kind of you're moving away from these like romantic relationships and then you still get these weird relationships like in the second book you get like anthony's doing some weird stuff with harahark okay (laughs) (laughs) yes that's true like getting in bed with her (laughs) yeah yeah I think there's there's always like that's there's always some sort of weird tension stuff going on, and I don't think like there doesn't need to be like an explicit you know you know romance that's like consummated in like book one. I was like the themes are there. It's one of those books where like people are just gay in their universe, and it's not it's not an issue. People are just very upfront about it, and that's what I enjoy. So it's not one that like don't go into it thinking you're gonna get like real bombastic like intense romance it's not it's not that kind of book but it's still it's still a lot of fun yeah I agree I mean for me it was like I I enjoy um a romantic subplot that 
subplot that's mostly like pining and tension. But if if that's not something you like, then you you know you might be frustrated by it. And um, but then again, I would say it definitely. To be yeah, if if you you want you came to that thinking like all I want I just want to read only lesbians just give me all the lesbians <laughs> stuff. Yes. and then like you get all this stuff about what what's, what's going on with all these commands and what's this whole why are so many people dying like there's there's one of these <laughs> yeah. books where if you only have like one thing you're going into it and that's all you wanted and you get done with all this other stuff that maybe you don't care about I understand why people don't like it on that level but I love yeah. I love my Sapphic books to just have, like, I need to have, like, a whole juicy big other thing that happens as well. Yeah, I agree. For And I will say that um, if you're a person who's, like, not into romance, then lesbian necromancers in space might have kind of driven you off. Like, you think, oh, well, if the first word is lesbian, does that mean it's all about lesbian stuff? Which, I mean, I guess it is, because if they're both lesbians. But I don't actually know that they are. Anyway, but I would say that the romance, if there, if you want to say that there's some there, which I think you could, because there's some reciprocal feelings, I think, between Gideon and Harrow, but not a whole lot, really, in this book. So I would say that it's really um, a side, like a very sidelined aspect of the book. Anybody who really just loves um, fantasy and science fiction, I feel like, should try this one, just because... It's so unique and it does, it has such cool ideas. So I hope that, um, I hope that anyone who listened to this whole spoiler filled conversation and hasn't read the book will and tell us what they think. And anyone who has read it, I would love for us to have a conversation in the server with people who didn't like it. Like, you know what I mean? I kind of wish, yeah. <laughs> I kind of wish Wynn had joined us, you know, because I feel like Wynn could bring like the other perspective. And I love talking about books that I really like, whether the other person liked them or not, not in like a, you know, you're never going to convince, it either works for you or it doesn't, there's no right or wrong answer, but um, it would be interesting to hear that other perspective, because I feel like it's so frustrating when you really don't like a book to hear people talk about how much they like it, (laughs) you know, that would just like let, that would let all the people who didn't enjoy it feel seen, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) so anyway, we'd love to talk about it more, and I hope that we can, um, get into the other books at some point even if it's just in the discord server talking about it because i just think there's so much to love in the whole series but the third book is one of the best i mean just the best reading experiences i've ever had in my life yeah. i just loved none yeah. of the night yeah so perfect oh man i, I love it it's yeah i yeah. need to read it so <laughs> yeah me too well, you, like you you were talking about listening to this one again and I got kind of jealous like I wish I'd had time to do that I think I will try to listen to it again and I'm sure like you once I listen to book one I'll be eager to listen to book two again book two is one where um and we don't this isn't what we're talking about today but book two has the prime I gotta reread this kind of experience because it's one where once you know the ending you're gonna want to know you're you want to see all those scenes again with that understanding and i i definitely want to do that so thank you tamson mirror for your gift to us i just think this series is really special and very deserving of all the hype um and also i understand why some people don't love it but i sure do so much love it so much yeah we have we have talked long enough um (laughs) we have (laughs) <laughs> I could go on, but we should we should stop there. Thank you to uh, to everyone who will listen to this when I eventually upload it at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for doing that. By the way, at whatever pace feels right to you, it's a lot of work. You're the best. It will get done. It will get done at some point. I will find. <laughs> but uh, thank you and goodbye. Bye. Bye.